we as a society, we love to look at black and white, right and wrong. And if it doesn't fit those narratives, we throw it to the side and we judge it. We label it. We stigmatize it. When really life is the gray area. And the gray area is this. Policing is a noble profession. It's a beautiful profession. We need them. Society in this country needs them. So we're going to continue. And they're some of the greatest people in the world. But some of the most broken souls I ever served with are serving policing. People that never worked on their baggage and never grew and that leadership roles and they're taking hostages and ruining agencies and people's lives. And we need to talk about this so we can get through it. I forgive so much in my life that people have done to me, but we have to, we can't forget those things either. And that's how we make change. We don't forget. And we have the courage to go out there and, and fight it. And it's, it's a battle for the love of people and to help make change for the generation of cops that want to come in this profession and want to serve in empathetic cultures and inclusive cultures. They want to, they want to arrest criminals equally as much as they want to help ladies carry the groceries in the house, because that's what service is. It's not just one area, it's service to humans and it's deep and it's vast. And I think in policing, we've gotten the, the cool person mentality of if you're not doing SWAT or something, you're not in the cool club. And it's not a cool club. This is a very messy, roll your sleeves up, serve humanity in an ugly way. And we got to stop thinking that we're cool and we have to do it in a very engaging and, and empathetic way. Chad Bruckner has a story to tell. In fact, he has a few, and each one carries a kernel that speaks to a larger story about leadership, vulnerability, and the potential we all carry within ourselves. In his early life, Chad made lemon bars to schmooze his way through high school. He began his career in public service by joining the Army at 17. When he returned, he went back to school and became a police officer. Life was promising. What happened next? Well, he can explain that better than me. I invited Chad to share his story as part of the Community Safety and Mental Health Series on PCC Local Time. I asked Chad about why he left policing and how he rediscovered his purpose in life. What I find most valuable in Chad's story is the bridge building between his past and his present. He does not discard the past but sees loss as potential for growth. He finds the transformative gold, something we can all hope for in our own lives. Chad is now coaching, consulting, and writing a book. He is also a popular speaker and a prolific content creator on social media. You can learn more about him and where to connect with him in the show notes. So, off we go. My, my idea for today is to take this from approach of a journey and that we all begin with a dream. We all begin with aspirations. And part of what makes it so difficult when we hit, and oftentimes many of us hit it in our 20s, I certainly did, where we have to figure out like what is happening, the reality hitting that dream. And I think that we might even start as part of our intro then with just talking about where you are right now that has you most excited in your life. With the end in mind, what is it right now that has you very excited about life? I love this. You're telling a story and you're going to start on the good stuff. We're going to build up to I love that. So right now, what Nancy, what's giving me most energy, and thanks for letting me be with you today, is I'm writing a book right now. And I'm one of these people that when I'm doing a project, I'm 100% in and I could jump into something and jump out of something real quick. So it's just how I'm wired. And right now I'm writing a book on what I'm calling, it's not the title of the book, but the topic is the holy trinity of healthy organizations or healthy entities. And it's organizational culture, leadership, and wellness. They all have to be together and they have to work together and play together. 
to, to have really healthy cultures. We can't have strong leaders and not focus on wellness um, and be successful. It just, I don't think it's going to work that way. And when I outlined in the book, and as I'm going back and writing it, it's just all these personally lived experiences, in addition to a lot of official modalities, research, conversations with people. To me, it's so illuminating. And I, sometimes I want to ba bang my head on the table because it sticks out so clearly to me and, and for others it doesn't, but maybe it's a little bit of shame. And I think when we try to work through things that require tough conversations and hard thoughts and change, it's hard to do that. It's easier to bury our head in the sand and kick the can down the road. And which is what I think we did in local government policing and uh, not everybody by and large and lots of great op people out there operating, but structurally and systematic, systemically and culturally, I think we've kicked the can down the road just too far and we have to come back. And that's what I'm working on now. It's a passion project of mine to help make change for future generations. And if you could put it in a nutshell for us, just to get us started, what was it that led you to this work? Yeah. Wow. Not planned or scripted whatsoever. I'll take you through when I left the military, I joined policing. I never wanted to be a police officer, actually. My, and it wasn't a negative thing. I had a lot of respect for law enforcement. But growing up and where I grew up at, the only interaction I had with police was traffic tickets. And I think as a 16 or 17 year old, I got an accident, crashed my car, got a speeding ticket. And they were great, respectful police officers. But my own, that was my only interaction. And, and having this dreamer personality, wanting to just write tickets was not something I wanted to do. We come, I come back from Iraq and being serving in war, and it was the first time as an infantry soldier where our job is in the infantry is to kill or capture the enemy. That's our mission statement. And at 17, I went in the army and they built me up and they built us up to develop us to train to kill or capture the enemy. So that mindset and took me, took me far in the military. And then coming back from Iraq and doing a lot of para law enforcement operations in Iraq, it opened my eyes to the possibility of cultivating informants, to helping citizens, to the sense of community. We, I wasn't getting that in the army. It was, you did talk about residents or citizens or countrymen. You did talk about your countrymen, but there wasn't this sense of community, which I think when you have smaller numbers and that sense of community really hits home, but then coming out, I had that sense of community. So I wanted to get into law enforcement and it was amazing. It was, I knew in my first six months, I was going to be the chief of police. I knew it because I knew leadership and I knew how much I loved the job and loved people and love communities. And it just, that's where my track was. So I immediately barely graduated high school. I had to actually, a funny story, I had to bake lemon bar to help smooth and help level out the grades for me because the skills of education wasn't my fine point, but smoothing people and making lemon bars was. Got through high school, but then I found myself in police work, now immersing myself in college because I knew where my goal was. I want to be a chief of police. And to do that, you have to be educated, you have to have perspective and experience. So for somebody who didn't want to go to college, ran away from school, then I found myself jumping into it. Yeah. But anything else, when you have plans for something and it doesn't come out to be that way, we can get into why uh, you have to make, we have to make decisions on what we're going to do. And I had to do that. And it wasn't easy and it was very messy and uh, I had to fall back on my values to do that. So let's go back to that beginning journey and when the dream first came alive for you, do you recall that, was it that you entered policing as a job and then you woke up to this idea of leadership? that you could be chief? Yeah, no, I came into it. So when I would, typically when I do something, once I make that commitment, I've already spent copious amounts of time preparing and thinking about this. So it looks, it might look from afar that I haven't thought about it, but I have. And so when I joined policing, I knew, I, I, breeze, I breezed through field training quick. And then 11 months, and I share this story because it, I think it explains my heart and my passion. My chief that hired me, when he was 11 months on the job, he retired. Joe McGurman, great guy. And at his retirement dinner, when he was leaving, we we're having a conversation. And he said to me, I'll never forget this. He's like, I got my best hire right on the last hire. 
And I'll never forget that comment as a cop, as a rookie cop still on probation. It was like, this guy was telling me I was the best hire he ever made. It was, what else are you going to say with that? So that just, again, fueled me to, he rode off in the sunset. And I was like, when the next chief came in, I was ready to go. And that chief was amazing. He helped me promote me and promoted me to detective and helped me again, further that dream. So I'm just grateful for all of that. And it's been a great ride. So in early years, you were very charged, energized by the work and things seemed to be moving along. You were getting a lot of affirmation for your talents. And I know as detective, that is one of the really interesting aspects of policing. And you were probably working with other departments. I know detectives tend to connect more, maybe with other agencies. Am I Right. That you're really in your network and understanding in a larger context of the world of policing. I'm wondering if you can recall some early lessons that might have been some red flags or something that alerted you to realities that you really did not anticipate on that journey. Yeah, I, this is a great topic. And this is where it's so layered for me and it's so great, Nancy. We as a society, we love to look at black and white, right and wrong. And if it doesn't fit those narratives, we throw it to the side and we judge it. We label it. We stigmatize it. When really life is the gray area. And the gray area is this. Policing is a noble profession. It's a beautiful profession. We need them. Society in this country needs them. So we're going to continue. And they're some of the greatest people in the world. But some of the most broken souls I ever served with are serving policing. People that never worked on their baggage and never grew and that leadership roles. And they're taking hostages and ruining agencies and people's lives. And we need to talk about this so we can get through it. I forgive so much in my life that people have done to me, but we have to, we can't forget those things either. And that's how we make change. We don't forget. And we have the courage to go out there and, and fight it. And it's, it's a battle for the love of people and to help make change for the generation of cops that want to come in this profession and want to serve in empathetic cultures and inclusive cultures. They want to, they want to arrest criminals equally as much as they want to help ladies carry the groceries in the house, because that's what service is. It's not just one area, it's service to humans and it's deep and it's vast. And I think in policing, we've gotten the the cool person mentality of if you're not doing SWAT or something, you're not in the cool club. And it's not a cool club. This is a very messy, roll your sleeves up, serve humanity in an ugly way. And we got to stop thinking that we're cool and we have to do it in a very engaging and, and empathetic way. You mentioned the cool factor. Do you have any thoughts about why we have difficulty addressing this? I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. It, 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 plays, it plays to a recent example of a cop who went through an oral board, a promotional board for sergeant. And he tells me the story of the leadership examples, the scenario-based questions that this officer went through were scenarios that this agency has never faced before. Double homicide or whatever, this, these crazy scenarios that most cops day in and day out have never responded to or won't respond to. And yet we're selecting leaders based on how they respond to those questions, those scenarios. Why are we asking questions about when you encounter somebody with mental health diagnosis and they have a dual diagnosis and they're also intoxicated on drugs and substances, what are you doing as a squad leader, as a sergeant? Those are the real questions. That's what they're dealing with every day. But that's not cool. That's not attractive. So again, it's we just have to break down the culture. Maybe it's just the older mentalities have to change that over time and through attrition. But the younger cops, they have been sold. This is a great job to be cool and make a lot of money and to hang your hat on. But a lot of this job day in and day out is rough and it's messy and you're bringing baggage home and you're sharing that with your family and you're taking it out on your family. You're developing bad habits and coping strategies as a result. These are the stuff we don't want to talk about that's happening. And then I just talked to a chief the other day who's in his late 60s or mid 60s who's overweight, he got a big bushy beard and he's hiding out in his house. How did we get to that point? On top of the world as a chief, 
hiding out in his house. How do we get to that point? I think a shame. I think in, we had a false identity of who we are and two importance of who we are and ego really took over and we don't know who we are. So that when that thing's taken away from us, the thing that we identified with, what do we have left? Ourselves and our values. And hopefully our values we built and cultivated that over a lifetime and relationships to fall back on when we need them. So that's a wonderful response. And I think how I would summarize that is that we come face to face with our identity and realize that identity is not us. And that it becomes part of that baggage we have. We, 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 we figure out at some point in our young adult world in particular, but I guess it could happen at any point in our career that we just come face to face with the fact that this identity is not who we are at heart. And so it becomes, let's talk about. Yeah, so Rachel, this is a good topic real quick. Identity, you bring up the greatest point. What happens when we realize or we believe or we have this little seed, this kernel of question or curiosity in our gut that, man, who I am is not what I was supposed to be or what I did was not who I was supposed to be. That shame for some people and for me, I talk for me, I ran from that. I'll tell you a story in Iraq. I was a 24-year-old staff sergeant, squad leader, full of vigor, oh, and I wanted to do such a great job. And I loved my guys. I cared. We're all infantry. or infantry were all male unit at that time. And I was 24 years old and I was supervising two sergeants who were 28 and 32, I believe. More experienced than I was. Great men, a lot of values. And I was not giving them that accolade and respect that they deserved. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional. It was me trying to prove myself, me trying to validate my belonging. I'm a young sergeant. I was the youngest squad leader in the company of 130 people. So one day we're having some conflict with a great squad, a lot of talent. We all get along real well, but there's some workplace conflict. And I asked guys, what's going on? What is the deal with this? We have so much talent. This shouldn't be happening. And they both looked at me and said, you are. So what do you mean? And of course I got defensive and I got a little resentful, a little angry. And I went back to my, that, my room that night or my, my, we call them a hut, a hooch. But, and I thought about that comment and I mm -hmm. thought about it. And I went back to them and I said, tell me more, explain to me about that. It doesn't mean I wasn't mad. It doesn't mean I wasn't shameful. It just means I needed to learn more to fix it. Because it wasn't about me being right. It's about the whole system getting it right. And that's how I think. So as shameful as it was, I had to say, I know it's not about me. So I just had to walk into that. And it was hard. And it's hard to hear those lessons and make changes. But I made them. And we all came home and, and I still talk to them today. So that was 16 years. We can work through conflict and still build strong relationships. It's when we have that shame that we, and I've seen it in the police world. We just go the other way. We don't want to work it out. And then we have friends who got hired together, promoted together. Then they retire and they hate each other. Why did that happen? How did that happen? They don't despise, they despise each other. And I don't think they hate each other. I think they just carry around a lot of shame. And if they could connect a little more and work on that together, oh, it would be amazing. It sounds to me like it would take a lot of courage to, to have this feedback. And I also would say that was a, took a lot of courage on their part to, to give that feedback to you. That right there tells you something of the relationship. It's a functional relationship. So you can- That's true. Back to get more information. And you're saying it wasn't easy. You're not saying that there was anything about that took away the pain or the anger. You are saying that in the end, it was a lesson that you learned from. And I brought that into policing. And I think, and I, not, not I think, I know. I know, and I've worked with cops who weren't in the military or only worked in one agency in police work. Some police officers bounce around and they have that experience. They have a little perspective. But I worked with some police officers who never in the military and worked at one agency. So they worked in one workplace organizational culture. That was everything to them. That's all they know. It's like growing up in a house as a kid. You think everybody lives that way. I understand that. But me, I traveled the world. I've been around. And it's not that I know everything. It's just that I had that perspective. I've seen a lot of failures. I've failed a lot. I've experienced a lot. And I've also just listened to a lot and watched a lot. So 
I think in local government, we have people that are trying to share those insights and sometimes that's not received the right way. And if we can receive it the right way, we can all make changes and everybody benefits and rising tide lifts all ships. Yep. I wonder, Chad, if somebody listening to this, who particularly is maybe in their 20s, because this is my recollection of my 20s as well. There is, there's enough ego and there's enough there at that point. To, you just are determined to overcome anything. So you could still chug along. And I wonder at the time in which you transitioned from the army into the police, if you look back on it and say, now there's like where I could have had a breakdown, but I didn't. In other words, there's a point at which any other person might have had some mental health issues that come up and maybe for whatever reason, you just blitzkrieged right through. Oh yeah. I'm going to tell you a story and it's about such as mental health. And I'm writing this in the book and it's been really cathartic to talk about. But when I came back from Iraq, there was a, a two-lane road, the kind of the main road that runs to the town I grew up in, and Horsham, Pennsylvania, by the way, amazing place. And, and they were making the road from two lanes to four lanes at that time. It was 05, late 05. And there was cones set up for construction. And I just got back from my rank and I had a, multiple IEDs blowing up in our patrols and small arms fire. It's just what war is. And I was 25 years old. Nobody talked to us about mental health. We didn't go through any of this stuff. So I had no knowledge or basis, which is scary because all the information I know now there are a lot of cops working in this job who don't know what I know. And it's, we need to help them learn this. And I saw these cones on the side of the road and my instinct, just the fear took over. And I thought that was a roadside bomb. So I started, I flew off the road in my brand new pickup truck, ran over a bunch of cones, pulled off the side of the road and hands were sweaty and I couldn't breathe and tunnel vision and 25 years old, physical prime of my life, just got back and had a lot of self-pride of serving our country. And, but that was the work I had to process the baggage. And that's what we don't talk about when you serve humanity, you serve your community, serve your country, even in managers, municipal managers. I know it. I talk to them now. I'm learning and it's new for me, but is you take a piece of that with you. You start to change. It's normal. It's normal to change when you do hard things. It's okay. It's recognizing, learning to recognize the change in yourself to have that self-care and make sure it doesn't burn out or get out of control. And I, those are things I had to learn. So I brought that lesson to policing and I see a lot of police officers struggling because they don't have that perspective. And that's where I want to help. That's the motivation that brought me here. So you sort of began at the, this idea of self-care. Was it something that you figured out on your own or over time just understood to be integral to survival and moving forward? I've always embraced mental health and emotional health. In my household growing up, my dad had some childhood trauma and he brought that, obviously we carry that in our adult life. So as a father, he brought that into his family and we got to see how that manifests, both good and bad, by the way. I want to highlight both good and bad. The resilience I learned from my parents, it, it's, and I'm writing about this in a book as well, and it made me cry, and I was sharing this with my mom, but it's such higher level resilience. It's not just resilience from all the adversity, from all the challenges. Is it ugly? Is it messy? Is it dirty? Is there conflict? Absolutely. But if we can find ways through it and maintain our dignity and values along the way, when we come out of that, it's such resilience that the arrows we take don't feel as much as the other people that get shot with one arrow and we get shot with 10 and we're trying to figure out, I keep moving. I don't know what's going on. Where other people are falling down from one arrow. And by the way, I was that person who got shot with an arrow and fell down. Uh, and that's the process. How can I learn to take 10 arrows and keep moving? Now, how can I learn to take 100? And that's where I'm at now. Nancy, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. I've always embraced it. And I've had a lot of people in my life in the police world and military that also encourage that. And I, sometimes I wasn't ready to hear that and listen to it, but it was embedded in my brain. So now with this desire to make change in action. I'm reflecting on all those great relationships and it's been a very powerful process. Yes. I want to stay in this just a moment longer because one of the reflections I had, again, going back to my 20s, was that when I really hit a wall, 
I remember thinking, and we didn't have mental health awareness to the degree we have today, but I had studied psychology, so I should have really understood a little bit more than I did. But I was encountering it really for the first time where I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. I was just, and I had all these physical symptoms. And it was interesting to me, which helps me have a lot of compassion for others. In that moment, instead of understanding the bigger picture, you don't have the energy for reflection and content. You just want an answer. Now, I had enough. My logical brain said, I'm going to find the smartest damn psychiatrist who will give me medicine and then I'll be over this. I'll just push right through it. That was my thinking. And of course, I got to the psychiatrist and she was amazing, but she didn't put me on medicine right away. And she made me talk for six months where she really didn't say anything except, how did that make you feel? And people make fun of that, but it broke me. And when I came out the other side of it, I realized that at that moment, for a lot of other people, it's like they don't have time to think about it. They just want to get rid of the pain. And that helps me understand what people do when they hit that crisis. I know that feeling. And I wonder, can you share something of how you made it through those kinds of... Yeah, it's, that's a great, deep question. And I've gotten to a point now where I'm comfortable talking about it. So I'm glad we're talking about this because so many people can't. They, we can't yet describe what that's like, the feelings of wanting to take your life and end your life. And I don't know if that's where you're going, but for me, I had those thoughts. I had those feelings. And it was from, for me, looking back, clearly more time that goes by, it was complete lack of hope. It was, I felt hopeless and powerless in my situation. I felt that it was never going to get better. And I felt that it was actually going to get worse. And I knew that it was going to get worse. So when you have that hopelessness, the only way you feel the way out is to take your life. It's all, it's that level of control is the only thing I can control. So that felt good to me. And that feeling of even just ruminating on the thoughts is I can control when, where, how I can do all that. You can't take that from me. Nobody can take that from me. And I'm just so fortunate that I have a support structure around me that I think a lot of cops that, and soldiers that I know that have completed suicide, I know have broken homes or not the best support structure. And I think back and it breaks my heart if I just, for one particular, if I knew I would have done more, but if I knew we needed connection more, but I, I had a lot of connection in my life. And that's, I think that's what saved my life is the thinking of who I've been leaving behind. And I just couldn't, that was, it was like one part of my brain was thinking about that. And the other side was equally adding shame and guilt because it was making me think about my family and it was making the shame and guilt even worse. And it was making those thoughts even worse. So Scary time. It was a scary time for me. And uh, the only thing I could do was to leave the police department because I was so scared, so terrified. I had so much fear and, um, and I got good at wearing a mask and, and acting like I wasn't afraid and have to go to run in my police car and do breathing exercises or something. Yeah. That, and I talked to cops every day, Nancy, and that's, there's a lot of cops with anxiety disorders and they're dealing with that and where they're gritting their teeth and they're going back in. And I'm telling them when I speak to them, you don't have to do that. Yeah. You don't have to grit your teeth. You don't have to maybe leave your agency if it's not toxic. There are things you can do if you love it. And if you think about the day you had that badge pinned on your chest and you, how proud you were, and you think of where you are right now, if you're not the same level of pride, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. It's for anybody at any job, I think. You know, Chad, I think you're getting at where we are going in the next section, but let's just stop a moment also on that mask business because we can be very good at masking. And this is the problem when somebody does something drastic happens to them. And then we wonder, how did we not know? I also know from my experience, as I'm sure you know from yours, we have very effective masks. It's not like people are just around us saying, huh, something really is wrong with Nancy. We need to get her help. It's not obvious at all. And so I think it's, I think it's important as a lead-in 
to what you're doing now and why it is and how it is that we can really work with mental health kinds of issues. Not that we need to call everybody out who's masking, but just to recognize that is part of it. Nancy, I want this to be inclusive. I don't want to discriminate a single person ever. Police, non-police, management, local government, not. We all are carrying baggage. And this is where I learned to forgive is some of the worst behavior done to me are done by some of the people most broken. So think about that. Sometimes the things that people hurt us the most are by people going through tremendous amount of pain. If we, instead of resenting them, we want to reach out and hug them or forgive them and let them know, hey, I don't forget what you did, but I forgive you. And I hope you find inner peace and safety because I know you're not, no matter what you say or project with the mask, because I've been through it. I know you're in pain. I know that. And I, I think that's shame for people when they realize that other people know what they're actually feeling and thinking that makes that shame even worse. So we do even more hurtful things. And uh, I'm just going to keep reminding people I'm here to love everyone. And I want to bring everybody in on this bandwagon. It excludes nobody. So you have perhaps found some ways in your work to help people either <clears throat> speak through their masks Maybe that's what they need to do, or maybe they reach a point where they can set the mask aside for a little bit. What are some of the ways in which you have found that you can get comfortable either with the mask or help somebody get comfortable taking the mask off? So anything you could talk about that you've learned in that path? Oh, we're going to go down the rabbit hole, Nancy. This, <laughs> is the num this is the number one issue in leadership of all industries, by the way that if leaders have been told this is bad, but actually it's beautiful and great. And here it is, vulnerability. We have been taught or conditioned that people will judge you, punish you, ridicule you, stigmatize you, label you, ostracize all these things by exposing your flaws. And systemically, sometimes that's true in organizations, right? I was punished for some of that stuff. But the real rub in leadership is your teams know everything about you. It's like a household. We might not talk about our parents or drunks, but we know it. We absolutely see it every single day. So when we don't talk about it, it actually creates a lot of resentment and distrust. If we, as leaders, can just bring a little vulnerability. I'm not saying we have to talk about all our problems, but I am having a bad, I actually was talking to somebody, who was I talking to yesterday? I was talking to somebody local government. It's a great conversation because she says, I walk into the municipality sometimes and I tell my staff, I'm having a bad morning. Things are going on. I just needed five minutes. I know you guys have some things to tell me and I'm going to, I'm going to listen to it all. Can you just give me five minutes? And she goes in and closes the door and does some breathing exercise. And I, I literally put my hands up. She didn't see it because we weren't on a phone call, but I'm like, that is a tremendous, that vulnerability with their team, with her team. I guarantee someone on her team has an anxiety disorder. And I guarantee someone on her team is going to walk into work with anxiety one day. And then they're going to say, hey, boss, can I talk to you for a second? Because they remember that. They're not going to hide it. Hopefully they don't suppress it. At least it gives them that ability to bring it out. It creates a healthy culture. So vulnerability, I think in leadership, we can be more vulnerable because I know every leader, because I've been to it, has a battle in their life. They're battling something at home or at work. So if we share that more, we don't have to carry all that shame. We can share in that and then get back on the horse. The whole goal is to stay in the fight, stay and stay on the horse, serve the community, serve our citizens. So let's share that together, get back on the horse and keep serving. Your message reminds me a little bit of the show Ted Lasso. Are you a Ted Lasso fan? I love Ted Lasso. I love <laughs> I am. It's funny. I watched the episode, the latest one, two nights ago. Nancy, you have to understand. And I'm, I'm just very honest. I, don't, I am who I am. And I had this for many years. I'm not hiding anymore. I'm a crier. So I'm watching Ted Lasso with just tears coming down my face of 
how much I connected and relate. I'm like, they made a show of something I completely live by every day. And I hope they make a thousand seasons. They won't and they shouldn't. But I just love that show so much because if we bring that, we laugh at that. And I talk to people who don't like Ted Lasso's cops. I bring this up in training and they laugh at that. Ah, uh, yeah. Because they're afraid, I think, to understand that they're not like that and they don't have to be, or they want to be like that. This is the rub I see. A lot of times we want to be like something or someone, and which is not necessarily bad, but we're not willing to put the work in to do that. And that's the rub for a lot of people. I was frustrated sometimes. I wanted something, but I saw how hard it is for them to get it. And I didn't want to do that. And instead of just owning that, I got frustrated or resentful. And I found a way in my life to not do that, to say, you know what? You go chase and celebrate. I'm going to cheer you on. And by the way, that's helping me go chase my dream. So it's hard. It's hard. It's a gray and messy area for sure. Yeah. They have that one scene. I don't know if it was the episode maybe before last where the Diamond Dogs got together. So for those who don't know, the coaches have this little, and there's not just the coaches or some others that are in the management and they all get together and they call a Diamond Dog session where they pour their heart out on something that's really troubling them. And what was so good about the last time when they pulled them all together is <clears throat> Ted poured out his heart and they're like, oh man, that's it. You called us into this for that. And you're thinking that's heartless. But actually the message they gave him was this is like totally catastrophic thinking. It hasn't even happened. And you're calling this in. So what was it? Don't, don't flip out before you find out. I think was the <laughs> And I thought that was like these little moments in the show just highlight the importance of connection. And then Nate, who's the coach that left and went to West Ham, he called together his group of management team thinking, I'm going to revive that idea in this new team. And he calls them together and he called it, this is the meeting of the love hounds is what he called them. Yeah. Nancy, can I tell you another thing about that? That's oh, that, that is, I, the diamond dog thing is amazing because I love that when they do that because I, and I'll text my brother about this or anybody that, that's like me, but not too many I know like that, that love that show and talk about each scene. But I'll talk about the writing. I'll be like, oh, Jason and Bill and all the other writers that I know they wrote this scene or thing. We know they wrote this scene because it's connection and vulnerability. And as alpha males, as males, when we come into the workplace and I've been around alpha males all life, we can find ways to share a little bit hard stuff. Man, like you could take a deep breath and lift the weight off your shoulders and keep moving, doing alpha male things. And I text my brother, but oh, they wrote this so we can help people understand it's okay. And the stuff with Nate, the storylines with Nate, I think it's fascinating because I correlate that to people in my life that I know that are trying to be other people. They're trying to be things that they're not. And they're trying to satisfy the inner critic. They're trying to silence the inner voice. They're trying to emulate others who they think are successful. And Nate is just a great character that clearly they wrote that for people to see. Like, you don't have to be like that. You can be yourself. You can be authentic and genuine and you'll still get to where you want to get to. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. We all can relate to parts of Nate. And now that he's got some feelings that are starting, he's showing that vulnerability. So and the I, comeback, the rise, the comeback. I love it. They're setting that up. It's great. I can't wait. So bringing that back into the workplace, thinking about our organizations here, and you're saying if you were meeting with a leader, you would put vulnerability right up there as one of the qualities that are important. And I'm quite sure that there's many that are not comfortable with that. So maybe you can define what that means. What does that look yeah. like? Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. I, and I was just talking to somebody about this police coaching, baby steps, baby steps. And I'm an impatient person. I have big goals and dreams and I'm impatient sometimes and, and I have to remind myself. So it's great that baby steps, it's all working towards something. And if our goal is to be vulnerable and we don't know how to do that, 
just try one thing, one thing about yourself, maybe share a weakness or maybe sit around when you're doing coffee and share a story of a time when you didn't crush it. We love to tell success stories, but maybe share something where you didn't crush it and share the lesson. So it's not just a negative thing about myself. It's what I learned. And that one little lesson and share, I think, I know I've experienced people will see them in a different light. I can't, what? And they'll text each other. Why did they, why did they hear she come in and share that with us this morning? And it might look a little nasty. It might look, feel a little uncomfortable. And if we do it one time, it's not going to work. Won't work. We have to be consistent and show up every day and lead like that. It doesn't have to be these, hey, I'm going through a divorce. Can I talk to you about it? But like the diamond dogs, it could be, hey, I was late to work today because I was dropping my kid off at school. And I know you guys saw me be late to work. And I'm, I just want to tell you, I'm, let's talk about that because I know I disciplined so-and-so last week for being late and I don't want to act like I wasn't late. So those are uncomfortable conversations to have. And I think if we talk about them, it helps us create a connection. And then next time, Maybe we're not so quick to discipline in leadership roles because we understand that vulnerability and we have developed empathy and compassion. I'm not saying discipline's not good. I'm saying that we sometimes don't always have to discipline. The art of discipline is to change behavior. And that connection and conversation, let me tell you, that goes a long way to change human behavior. So if we spend more time on that and not do these quick issues, discipline and create and lose that employee now for five or 10 more years, it's, it takes effort and time. But the little baby steps, it doesn't take uh, big things. I like that. And uh, so it's a practice. It's not a, so, something you can do in the short term. It, uh, this is what creates culture. That's why the love hounds didn't work because it wasn't part of the culture. And I think in <laughs> having that moment where somebody, it might be a very small thing, they're having difficulty because they, their partner can't pick up their kid. And now they're going to ask for some flexibility and whatever the issue might be, you have that decision you have to make as the manager or the leader, but you also have a moment there to really listen and a moment there to empathize. So whatever the decision is, it might have to be not necessarily what they wanted to hear, but it can move in the direction of a better understanding, something along these lines, just taking that moment as an opportunity. And so I think about vulnerability is also listening or making sure that others feel heard, even if it's not going to result in the, what they want to hear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I'm listening to a manager lately. Obviously, I don't, I've never been a manager, but having so much interaction with them now on a daily basis, and I'm learning a lot, and it's fascinating, is I see the demands of municipal managers of some municipalities are more progressive and bigger. And these managers are doing amazing things. They're doing a thousand things with seemingly little resources sometimes, and they're moving. And sometimes they don't have time to have a 20-minute conversation of the hard stuff, or maybe they, their day just doesn't allow it. And they say, hey, can we talk tomorrow? But that person needs you now. That's hard. I know that's hard. And there's no right answer for that. And talking about coaching and mentoring and seeing what you're doing, I think it's great to fill that gap. Like you don't have to spend, if you don't have that, if your particular municipality doesn't have all that time, because if you're dealing with X, Y, and Z, bring in somebody from the outside to help fill that gap and let them know you care about them and explain that communication, the ex expectation to your team member. Hey, I care about you. And we're going to invest in you by doing X, Y, and Z. So you know, that still might not be what they want. They might want your time, but I look back at leadership experiences in my life. It wasn't always optimal. And it, I just wanted to know I cared. At the end of the day, you, you care. Yeah. I think that there, there are a lot of pieces to this. And one of the things that you and I both see when we go into organizations that there might be a situation where a more serious mental health concern is at stake. And so now there has to be some decision about what is the next best thing to do. So in talking with the leader about concerns, it might be that there is another counselor through the wellness program. That's what I know managers are coached to do in the broader insurance industry as to avoid liability. They are really 
coached to refer people to that counseling service to make sure that there's not an entanglement of this person's mental health history with their employment at an organization. So I think this is problematic. It's not a full enough picture. And so I think what we're doing today in this conversation is navigating what it could look like, where you're not getting into territory that could bring about liability, but that you are finding ways to be supportive of a, mm. a person that may be really changing and going a new path. And yeah, this is a great conversation. I, I love this question, Nancy, because you're asking questions and we're talking about things that I don't hear anybody in local government talking about. I know we need to talk about this stuff. I think fear and leadership roles is a number one disruptor, number one inhibitor from being able to do what we want. The essence of leadership is to influence people to change or do things. That requires you to put yourself out there as a leader. In local government, we're so worried about our contract. We're so worried about our families that we make liability and fear-based decisions. I'm not putting my family on the line for you, but then you shouldn't be in this role. You shouldn't be in this role. There's an element you're going to have to sacrifice and put yourself on the line. That's the rub in local government that I see where I work at in this area of Southeastern PA is you got to put yourself out there. And if you're not willing to do it and you just want the compensation or you want the title and you're not willing to do the messy stuff, you're never going to be successful. You're never going to be effective. It's not possible. Leadership is messy. It's not pretty. It's not putting nice uniforms on, press uniforms and standing at podiums and giving speeches. That's not what leadership is. I think everything that you said, and if anyone follows you, Chad, you've talked about it freely in other venues that, there, that you just can't escape in the job of police officer the kinds of issues that are going to become baggage if you don't address them. And so for the chief, it becomes especially important to know how to manage that individually. So I think about this message of leaders taking care of their own mental health, that self-awareness, and that's got to be a difficult thing to do. What are some of the ways in which leaders can administer self-care and make sure that they are balanced and healthy? Yeah, that, that's a great topic. I'll segue one tiny second, Nancy, and I'm going to answer your question, but because I want to make sure I answer it, answer your question the way from my perspective, like two things leaders have to have, courage and resilience. You don't have to have anything else. This mo notion that the leaders are the smartest one in their profession, I don't know how we got at that role. And I think that's intellect trying to rise up and really EQ is what gets you promoted. EQ is what transcends organization. You look at every unhealthy organization and culture and you look at the top, they have ineffective leadership and they probably promoted based on technical skills and not who's going to influence and have a visionary type of process. Part of being resilient is you have to know yourself. You have to know everything about yourself, your flaws, your strengths. You have to know your history. You have to know where you came from. You have to know the people around you. You have to know the world around you. We can't overcome our challenges and be resilient leaders for other people without that. So that's fundamental. We have to know ourselves. We can't, we can't do the things we want to do when we're broken or we're damaged. And by the way, all our brokenness, I believe we can heal. I know we can heal and come back from. There was a point when I left the police department, I was laying in my foyer in my boxers with a bottle in my hand, wondering what went wrong. Nothing went wrong. If you would have judged me on that moment, you would have said, oh man, best days are over. Life is over. What happened to Chad? That was a moment in time. And I think for leaders, we don't want to have those moments and understand those moments, but those are the moments where it's great. That's where we're learning. Embrace that stuff. And when we run into our fear or discomfort, it makes us more resilient. We're not afraid to take chances. We're not afraid to put that liability hat on and say, you know what? I know what the liability is, but I also know what the right thing to do is because I have courage and I'm resilient and I'm going to do it because my people need it. And it's hard to get there and it takes time, but I know we can all do it. If the leader does open up with a, perhaps a person on their team 
that requires more time than they're able to give, that the chief recognizes, I'm not able to give enough time. I'm going to help this person find somebody who will help them. And in other words, you're going to walk alongside them, but not necessarily be able to give everything. An important part of staying healthy is recognizing that you can't be that to everyone. And so you have to be able to know how to triage, if you will, be caring and compassionate in that moment, but also being able to lead them to somebody who is able to give them better help, so to speak. Eleanor Brown says, we can't serve others from an empty vessel. And I think it's great what you said is we have to take care of ourselves. And I give this example, hurt people, happy people, help people. If we're not the best versions of ourselves and we don't love ourselves, how could we possibly take care of our teams? We can't. We can't. We're not taking care of ourselves. So if you look at Maslow's hierarchy needs of safety and security on that first level of food and water, just the basics, we need to do that for ourselves. And then we can do the things for others. And I think so many leaders are sacrificing their self-care and, and their well-being. And it's not even a bad thing. It's noble. I think a lot of leaders are doing it because it's the right thing to do. And they got in their leadership role with all these dreams and aspirations of wanting to do it the right way. And they don't know four or five years later why they're burned out. Nobody likes them. And what happened? And they haven't thought about that. I self-sabotage. I burn myself out. And I lost my ability to stay in the fight. In municipal government, I think that's happening a lot. And I know we can get it back by just talking about it and sharing in that. This wellness and self-care is so important. So you mentioned that word burnout. Is, was burnout a part of why you left policing? Absolutely. I went through a work change and I got, uh, went through a demotion, I spoke out against a, a, a testing process that I know wasn't legitimate. And I spoke out against it and I got punished. And when I got demoted and sent back to patrol, it, it, it rocked my life. It was the first time I went through a professional setback like that. And it, at almost 40 years old, I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to respond to it. And uh, I didn't have a baseline, healthy baseline. It was the one arrow I took and it fell me to the ground and I had to learn how to pick myself up. And now I can take a lot of arrows, but that was a process to get there. And, and it's, we can sometimes point the finger at externals or blame people for certain situations, which I don't. And, or we can just understand that this happened, this is life and we can find ways through it and not have be resentful and have that. And I think when we can do that in local government, we don't have to leave organizations if they're not unhealthy. We can continue to push through and serve and weather that storm and wait for opportunities. Obviously, if we're in healthy places, that might be challenging to do, but it's worth the fight. Yes. So you keep bringing up really salient points, the speaking out. And again, going back to your 20s and hitting these realities, and the dream is busted. And that part of the realities that we often come face to face with is that we speak out when we know something is not right, or we do the opposite. We'll hold it in. We know something's not right. And then we don't speak out either way. You can really find yourself with some precarious types of stress. Nancy, let me tell you this. So I'm going to share another thing I haven't told anybody. I don't even think my wife knows the story, but I'm going to share it because we're just going down this hole and I love this stuff. So I, I have a certified recovery specialist in Pennsylvania. So I'm in active recovery. And I went to the training February this year. So I sat in February training of this year. I've never been to treatment, inpatient, out, none of that stuff. My use, which I'm learning is was self-medicating through my situation. I was trying to not feel what I was feeling and get through that. So I was using substances to feel that. It was a moment of time. It was an isolated thing. But through that, I learned the power of recovery, the power of healing. And so I go through this training and I'm sitting there with everybody who's been in treatment. They look different than me, although their hearts are the exact same as me. And I'm listening to their stories of when they were arrested or how cops treated them. And I wanted to crawl into a hole. And I'm going to get choked up thinking about it. Because these are experiences and perspectives of people. 
We can say that that's not true or they're lying. We could say that, or we can listen to them and understand that's what they think and feel. That experience helped me understand the track I'm on and I have to share my experiences. My, keeping things in doesn't help anybody and sharing it can hopefully help somebody. And, and, but there, there's a journey to that. And so I'm so grateful for people that go out and share their stories, share their experiences. That is how we change the world. People keeping things in and letting bad situations not be fixed is not going to help anything. Chad, can you tell us about the power of recovery? It is special. It is special. It is, it's the power of belief. It's the power of, although collaboration is critical in this world and I need partners to, to navigate life, we all need them. It's the belief that I have everything inside of me, everything inside of me I need to do what I want to do. The capabilities are there. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard work, all that stuff, but the belief. And for me, that's what recovery gave me. Is it's this belief that what I want to do, how I want to do it, the way I want to do it, the values, how I people want people to see me do it. Like those are things I'm thinking about and I would have never had that if I wasn't in this space. So when I talk to cops and coach them, it's I tell them, by the way, most cops that go to therapy, I've learned, I actually don't think they need therapy. They just need connection. They need some people in their lives, like a coach or somebody that's just letting them vent and talk about some hard things that happened to them. Maybe their boss treated them unfairly or in, in inequity or something. They just want to be, get that out. And, and that's a powerful thing to share that. Very radical thought, and you embody it, but it is the freedom of choice that when we are confronted with these situations and you've learned sort of the struggle of being boxed in to a place that you didn't want to be, and that was not your intention. And so you exercised the freedom to choose to not be there. And oftentimes, and this goes back to leader choices in terms of how they help employees, I think about helping employees understand their freedom of choice, that if they are really not that happy in the work that they're doing and they're railing about the organization, to understand their freedom is a first step to deciding if that's where they want to be. That it can, it, it's not about changing the organization all the time. Not to say that we don't see system need for system changes, but just confronting the employee with their own freedom often requires them to think then, maybe I don't want to be here. Nancy, think about everybody that comes into municipal government, local government, wherever that is, they want to do well. They want to do a good job. They want to have success. They probably want to get promoted. They want to take care of their family and they want to be respected and they want to have accolades and they want to be seen as a thought leader. That's what people want. So yes. if we don't give them at least the respect and the eye contact and the connection that you are valuable, I see you, I see you. That is crushing people in local government. And they're saying, at least I'm saying it, I don't have to take this anymore. I think COVID was really an eye opener of just a lot of things, a lot of change is as life and society change around us, I think that opened up a lot of people to say, you know what, this is changing. Why can't I? It's been interesting. Yep, that's right. And so you have moved on from your policing, although you're still working with police organizations today. But I think that understanding of that freedom is a great message that, that you're an example of saying you did something you loved, you, you stuck with it, and now you're moving in a direction that more, that explores your potential to a greater degree. And that was part of your recovery process, which I think is so powerful. One more story for it, Nancy. This is, and it's, this is not a critique. I write about this in my book, but it's a mindset. It's a mindset. I'll never forget a lieutenant that I know, 
uh, came up to me and who I respect and said, when you leave here, they're going to fill your spot the next day. You know that, right? And I said, yeah, I know that. And I had my head low and I agreed with them and I didn't fight back. I can't reject that notion much more. That's the lie that we've been told. That's how we control people and keep them compliant is making them feel like you'll never have a better opportunity. This is as good as it's going to get. We'll fill your spot. It's hard to look at somebody and say, you're an all-star here. What are we going to do when you leave? Oh my God, we can't, we don't talk that way. That's the truth. I know when I left there that I was taking so much experience and knowledge and collaboration and service to the community. And I did things there that never been done there. And it's okay to share that with the people. Let them know, because baby, I would have stayed if that stuff had been shared. And it's not just about that. It's about just organizationally. I talked to so many cops that all-stars that leave and they're, they just feel, man, I feel like I was the bad guy. I don't know how I was the good guy and all of a sudden was made to be the bad guy. And it's an interesting mindset of how that happens in our cultures. And I love to talk about this and get more into it. So that's what I want to do here in PA is really help make it, make it change. Yeah, I think that's, that's just some great insight. You are speaking out about your experience. And I think it really helps to bring a human element to your work with organizations today. And so you are working with leadership and with teams to help them develop. Do you want to say a little bit more about how you work with organizations today? Yeah, I have a private investigation firm, Intercounty Investigation and Solutions. We're here in Pennsylvania and we're adding services and expanding and it's been pretty cool. And one of the things I really want to get into, which I'm really passionate about is on the police side is coaching and mentorship and leadership training. And, and these conversations are leading to, man, I think we're doing it wrong. I think we could do it better. And fundamentally, I'm saying they just want a little bit more human connection. And if it's not their leader, they want somebody from the organization to say, we care about you. We see you. We're investing in you. You're not just another number or an asset here. You're the most important part. Our humans are the most important asset we have in our organization. And it's when we think like and, and practice that and demonstrate that every single day, we don't have to be the best leaders. We don't have to know everything. We don't have to make all the right decisions. Culturally, organization, we know we're in a place where we're loved and respect. It's like a family. It's like we can get in an argument, but if we have a tight family, we know we're going to weather this. We'll be fine. And when we're dysfunctional, we know that this is going to lead to problems. So for the coaching side, I think it's really important to have that ongoing growth. Cops need to have growth mindsets. The world around us is changing. Everything is changing. So we have to change with it. We can't have this fixed mindset. And because I was trained in this five years ago or 20 years ago, that this is the way I'm going to do it. No, you have to change. You have to grow. We have to. I'll tell you this story. is. This is a cool story because it's just happened. I had a soldier from 2001 reach out to me. So 22 years ago. I haven't talked to him in 22 years. He lives in Idaho or Iowa, I believe, one of the eyes. And he reached out to me last week out of the blue. And he said, hey, man, I've been thinking about you a lot over the years. And I said, oh. Now, admittedly, I haven't thought about him since. And so what do you mean? I'm just going through some life struggles and some challenges. And every now and then, each year that goes by, I still remember some of the things you said. Nancy, that's 22 years ago. That's almost a quarter century ago. Something I said he still thinks about. Leaders have tremendous responsibility to change the lives of human beings, which then will change organizations and change governments and change cultures and change countries. It yeah. starts now and it starts small and it starts local. We have that ability, all of us. Words matter. And I think that really helps us come full circle in the episode today, that it's related directly to mental health and what you say to somebody that affirms who they are. And they might not even know it yet. It may be that what you say to them doesn't come to fruition until much later, but they've, it's like a seed that you plant. That's really beautiful. I want to, in closing, Chad, I've been asking all of my guests to think about invitations. I think of invitations like imagining the future. And it's a, once we can visualize that, we can 
will clearly see what it is that we are aspiring to for our future. And I want to ask you if you had an invitation to speak at any event that you could dream up. And I know you're a great speaker, so this is why I'm asking it in this context. You could speak at any event that you could possibly dream up. What would that event be? And what would the invitation ask of you? That's a good question. So I'm going to answer that. And actually, I'm not going to answer, but I'm going to tell you a story because it's kind of related. And then I'll answer that question because it's, you made me think of this story, which by the way, I can't believe I'm going to tell the story, but oh geez. In March, my daughter had a conference, a dance competition. She's a dance team in New York City. And we go to this competition and I had to kill some time and I'm by myself and I have my AirPods in or my ear, earbuds and I'm walking New York City, Midtown, I'm walking, going for three miles and I'm just vision, visioning where I want to be and what I want to do. And without even realizing, I stopped and I looked up and I'm under Jimmy Fallon's sign. And I don't know what made me say this. And I can't believe I'm even saying this publicly, but I was under Jimmy Fallon's sign. I was just hit with emotion. I said, Jimmy, I'm going to be on your show one day. There you go. I don't, I don't know why he said that, but I believe it, Nancy. I believe it because maybe not Jimmy, but somebody that I just, there's a story to be told and there's people that need help. They're reaching out to me and I hear it. They need help. They need support. And for the first time in my life, I'm not afraid to do it. And uh, yeah, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be fun. But anyway, what I want to say, the most impact for me is speaking with people and having that human connection. So I don't know what the dream would be like, a dream event, but I spoke at Hershey a month ago or a month and a half ago. And at the end, people were clapping and I look in the front row and this old elderly gentleman, not older, I'm sorry, late 60s, early 70s, had tear rolling down his cheek. And then he came up to me at the podium, caught me off guard. And I was in my head a little bit, still trying to process. I was fired up and passionate. And uh, he's almost nose to nose with me. He said, thank you. And God is with, you know, God's using you. And I said, oh, thank you, sir. And he said, can I give you a hug? Even me, I was a little uncomfortable because that caught me off guard, but I reached out and gave this guy a hug. We embraced for five seconds. This is a stranger. 75 minutes later, he needed a hug and I wanted to give him a hug. And it made me realize that that human connection is what we need more of in local government and in this world. And that's what I'm going to go to try to help deliver. Yeah. You heard it first here, folks, on the PCC Local Time. Chad, I would say to you, get get yourself an agent because I think you could be a keynote speaker at a lot of conferences. I think that would be a great side gig, but I think it could be something part of your future. And and uh, you're going to write a book and then you're going to be on Jimmy Fallon. So it sounds like an exciting career. I'm very excited for you. Hey, can you do me a favor and not tell anybody about that? That's a little embarrassing. So are you serious? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, you, no matter what I, you can't do it anyway. It's going out. So it's all right. It's going out. It's going out. All right. Thank you so much, Tad. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you. Nancy, keep up the great work. Honestly, when I got into this space two years ago, I was looking for support any which way I could get it. And I was looking for networking and friends. And, and you're somebody that, that showed up and we had some Zooms. And I just appreciate all of it. It really has helped me a lot. So thank you. I'm rooting for you. And thank you. We'll see you. Thanks, Nancy. See you. All the best. Goodbye. Bye.